Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Agents of Hope podcast. My name is Tim Cox and I'm your host. Uh, I'm a trainee educational psychologist who's studying at Newcastle and today uh, we have our first uh, episode, number three, which is an all-trainee affair. Um, so today I'm going to be talking to Naomi Boswell and if you could, Naomi, if you could just introduce yourself, um, tell us what you do and what motivates you um, in your role as a trainee educational psychologist. So hello Tim and thank you for having me on the podcast today. Um, I think it's a, a bit of a, a new venture but an interesting platform that you're using to try and bring the EP community together and I'm quite glad of it really because I think at the moment we're all working at home and feeling mm -hmm. quite remote and maybe a bit cut off from things so it's nice to uh, listen to other, P e other EP's ideas and really have the opportunity to think about our practice and stop and, and reflect for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, so as you said, I'm a trainee educational psychologist. Um, I'm training at Manchester at the moment. And really, I started life in a, a little village in the northwest uh, of England in Lancashire. Um, I grew up in a single parent family, um, just me and my mum. And um, I suppose always interested in education, really enjoyed school, really motivated uh, mm -hmm. to do well at school, um, which was quite interesting because in my family, it wasn't really the norm for people to go on to higher education. There wasn't okay. really anybody in the family that had done that. Um, my mum got a couple of GCSEs and then that was it and went in straight into work. So um, it was a little bit new, but I think from very early on, I knew that that's what kind of uh, drove me that idea of learning the okay. idea of um, just finding more out about the world I think I had a lot of questions okay. <laughs> and so at the age of 11 I decided I wanted to go to the grammar school even though my mum wasn't keen on it um, but I, I argued my points and decided that's what I was doing even if that meant not being with my best friend and carried on and then went on to um, study psychology after studying it at A level um, and thinking this is the bit for me. I suppose I had um, a psychology teacher who no matter what question I asked it wasn't a silly question okay. and, it, and I think that idea which is very much embedded I feel within the profession of, of feeling uncertain but actually that being okay and this idea of muddling through things all together mm. um, is quite interesting. And so I went to study that at undergrad. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit later really about my journey to educational psychology specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but I started working in a residential setting with children with autism after a family friend um, was diagnosed with autism at a young age. And I think that really, again, sparked that interest in why do we all develop differently? what okay. is it that that makes us different and how do our stories develop um and it was interesting to hear in the other podcast you talked about narratives and community and and how that plays a part in you and i think when you started this podcast i'd never really thought about us being agents of hope mm. um, and this idea of hope had never really entered my brain but actually i stopped and i thought what is it that makes us agents of hope because I, I as soon as I, I read about it and I heard you talking about it I thought yes we are mm. but I suppose for me it was 
about this idea of hope do are we facilitators of hope but also what gives us hope what yeah. is it that makes us be okay with that sense of being uncertain and keeps us going to work every day and keeps mm-hmm. us going into very difficult meetings and and working in challenging situations and um, so that resonated a lot with me and then also this idea of community I think I always say I'm a village child okay. <laughs> which is no disrespect to my mum but in our community it was you were a part of every family your family wasn't really just mm. your blood and and that sense of community is something that I always find to have a big impact both for me and how I've grown up but also for the children that I work with in schools um, so I think the podcast in itself has have, have opened a lot of doors for me and a lot of questions okay. really um, and kind of really what's made me who I am now um, mm. and what made me take all those decisions to lead me to where I am. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating to hear you kind of talking about that kind of journey and the kind of the, the constant setting of uncertainty that you've you've taken and like the, the, the courage um, that kind of must be behind that. And, it, and uh, what, what, you know, what do you think it is about perhaps that uh, experience of um, being a, a village child or being from a family which perhaps doesn't... Um, have the kind of I guess your kind of wouldn't have thought that you'd become a doctor in educational psychology I guess Mm -hmm. I I, 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 I guess it makes me wonder whether you're doing something in spite of those circumstances or just because you want to represent that difference in in UK society I think it's probably a little bit of both and I think part of me when I reflected on this the other day, I was thinking very much actually, because I came from a single parent family, that gives you a lot of responsibility often because you, it's less of the adult child dynamic and more that actually your views are very much respected because you're more okay. of a team perhaps, or that was my experience of it anyway. And I think that gives me the, I suppose, the, the position in which I felt comfortable in having a voice. Um, and I didn't feel afraid of having an opinion because at home my opinion was very much respected so Mm. that was fine and I and I felt happy to to challenge maybe where and take make decisions really where I perhaps wouldn't have had the opportunity to make those decisions or Mm. other children might not have had the opportunity and but also I think you're right and in terms of do do I do it to represent a different kind of community and a different kind of profile within the profession? Well, actually, I, I think I reflected on that also when you talked about narratives and um, as a trainee, this is something I really struggle with. And I think you spoke last week about how whether we are the expert or whether we aren't. And I think as a person you hold lots of different narratives so as being a trainee that has come from that environment it's something that wasn't expected so at home it's very much bigged up oh my you're doing a doctorate you're doing this and it, it's very important but then actually you walk into a meeting and you want to seem like everybody else and you perhaps don't want to be seen as the expert in some meetings and, and you want to instead give a contribution um, of psychology but you don't necessarily want to put yourself on that pedestal so again there's that conflict already from 
what you experience in your home life to what you experience at work mm-hmm. or perhaps the the kind of message that you want to give off to people so you have your internal kind of ethos and what you want to be about but when you put in different situations you might feel that that's conflicted a little bit mm. um, so yeah I think it's quite challenging but yeah. it's something that I'm trying to learn and work through and decide really is it okay to have different narratives in different contexts mm. Um, mm. and how do we manage that to to feel happy with it and not feel so contested all the time yeah yeah I think I, I de- that definitely resonates uh, with me I mean, I think it's it's that con- constant tension, really, between like being useful and being humble um, about about what we do and and how it can affect it, affect change and all of those sort of things, and also that knowledge that what we're doing is really nuanced and, and, and complex. So we do need that humility. Um, and yeah, I mean, yesterday I, was, I put out on Twitter something about you know. Um, the importance of patience with education uh, and what that entails and there was kind of quite a lot of kind of comeback about kind of openness to not knowing mm-hmm. and that's something that's kind of, you've you've you know just kind of talked about when you're introducing yourself there is that kind of that that comfort with not knowing is perhaps what defines part of our profession and that's you know that's I guess that makes as relational and, and accessible in a way. And I think that's two themes that really come out in the first two podcasts is like the importance of, of, of listening and, and the importance of kind of our relational position with, you know, particularly, I guess we're talking about people in consultation and, and kind of systemic work. So you talk about staff and having that kind of, um, yeah that kind of way of working with people all of the time um as as a like a key feature of what we do yeah and i think actually um coming back to what you're saying about working with staff i think again there's another challenge there because you might want to really work on that relationship but sometimes because of where staff come from they might be in a time where they're feeling not okay about things feeling like they're in crisis and so Mm. perhaps they then give you that narrative of you're going to come in with the magic wand and you're going to save us and you're going to and you're up there again on this pedestal when actually you want to be there to develop that relationship and work collaboratively Mm. Um, and that can be a little bit more difficult yeah and it's it's something that I when I was writing the kind of uh, agents of hope paper I, I I can't remember exactly the uh psychologist who talks about it but he says when eps and psychologists present themselves as having the magic wand which is going to fix something that magic wand very quickly becomes a beating stick if we can't do it or we can't sustain it um so yeah having those ways of being with staff and and working through a process i think it's really important yeah yeah and suppose that comes back down to again help making yourself relatable and having that openness and I liked actually last week you you spoke about um how we might do that and and just being open um and so I always talk about I don't know um being late for work or or, mm. or the traffic in the car and 
and I suppose until you're willing to share your kind of story with people as well, then they don't know where you're coming from and you can't build that relationship as effectively. Um, and I think during the training for the educational psychology doctorate, that's the, the biggest thing I've learned because I was an assistant educational psychologist before mm. um, and I did pieces of casework and, and I did different projects and things. But actually as a trainee, you have the opportunity to start to develop those relationships with schools um, and really think about your practice and how you want what's important to you um, mm -hmm. but I also think um, I reflected on this after last week's podcast as well that actually I think there isn't for me there isn't one way of being so there isn't the opportunity to say this is the way I want to practice it's acknowledging that at this point this is the way I want to practice but I might go into a meeting in a month's time and have an experience that makes me think that's not right for me and we need to work on that and we need to change that mm -hmm. um, so i yeah. think again it's that, that continuous kind of movement i suppose in our journeys yeah yeah and i think part of that is like staying real in relationships and bringing our experiences and our values to the practice that we do and, and um not being just kind of shrouded in this expert role um mm. that i think a lot of people will see that that we have and as you kind of started off with like that's a, that's a difficult balance to, to to keep so i guess we're kind of um i guess we're circling like the the main thing that we wanted to talk about today uh, and that is co-production and this is like something that you're i understand that you're looking into researching at the moment so can you tell us a little about what co-production is um because i i think i think i know but i'm not entirely sure um and uh, yeah just tell us you know, what it is i think you make an interesting point in when you say you think you know but maybe yeah. you're not sure because i think that is the case across our profession but also across all sorts of professions that are working with service users of all kinds whether that's adults or children and young people and mm -hmm. um, i am researching it at the moment and it's been very much the, the focus of my thesis um, and i suppose for me co-production is how we involve children and young people in a way that's meaningful for both parties okay in a way that starts at the very beginning so we don't come with something and try and engage them mm -hmm. but actually we ask them what do they want to focus on um, and that doesn't mean we can't contribute our own ideas um, but it means that we value them at every point in the journey I suppose um, as you create something together mm -hmm. um, and I've been trying to get my head around a little bit around what's the difference between participation and co-production mm. Because I think actually sometimes co-production isn't always achievable, particularly okay. within educational psychology and, and different services with financial pressures and resources and, and, and different types of things. But actually, does that mean that we shouldn't still provide those opportunities for young people um, to mm. participate in things that we think might be important to them or at least give them the opportunity to say whether they want to be part of um, whatever it is that we are mm. looking at? Yeah. Um, so yes, it's quite quite broad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think that it's like a really important um, thing to think about because I think it's certainly like the spouse bit of my practice 
But I think I think what what I struggle with a little bit is that often in practice, like with because I work in a traded service, I'm trading with I guess a, an adult's perception of what that child might find useful or or helpful, um, and just trying to think of ways of shifting that and reframing um, because then. <clears throat> Yeah, they're never going to hold, children are never going to hold the purse strings, I guess, that's going to initiate our contact. So how do we, do, how, yeah, I think that's where it kind of jolts with me. It's like, how, how can I get over that? I think you make it a really valuable point. Um, and I suppose part of my research looks into that how do we as educational psychologists involve children and young people and how can we um, I think that it's a difficult challenge particularly when if you're in a traded service and it's coming from schools but actually the whole environment within schools I feel doesn't always allow for children to have a, a voice that can be heard um, I've just been doing some research recently um, around a systematic literature review um, looking into facilitators and barriers of co-production um, across education, health and care. And interestingly, there isn't a single paper that I could find where there was any co-production with children and young people in education. Okay. Um, so, and this idea that actually, what is education? And I think... I think it, education comes from like the Latin word, I think it's called educe, I can't pronounce okay. it very well, but it, but it means that um, it's that collaboration of knowledge and it, I suppose we have to think about is education, a teacher stood at the front delivering knowledge that the children have to soak up and, and use or is it actually that collaboration where you learn together and you're in that learning journey together um, mm -hmm. and actually I think within the education systems within the UK although we might like to think that children and young people have the opportunity um, to, to kind of learn what they're interested in actually I think it's very much the first model where they're mm -hmm. expected to sit and learn and uh, what we think is important for them to learn um, it kind of brings me to where I started this journey. And um, I mentioned before, I used to work in an independent setting for young people mm. with autism. I'm ranging from children with, who were non-verbal um, and very sensory seeking to young people who were attending college and taking GCSEs. Um, but primarily I worked with young people who were non-verbal and I mm -hmm. struggled a little bit um, actually in how we really hear their voice and because they're non-verbal that meant that they didn't always get the opportunity to go out on the bus to the shop because the young person who was knocking on the manager's door every 10 minutes they got that opportunity um, and then I thought they're missing out on all these opportunities mm. to learn um, be perhaps because we think that's not something that's meaningful for them or that they're not motivated by that or they're not bothered by that um, so that started me really thinking about it. And within this setting, actually, they had their own curriculum. And actually, in hindsight, I realised how lucky those young people were because we could really value every bit of development they made. Whereas I then went to work for a local authority special school and we were trying to still put children in boxes and say what was meaningful and actually 
they were demonstrating that children weren't making progress but not actually acknowledging that that child had been able to come into school every day and originally they weren't able to <laughs> so I found that quite difficult um, and I think really that's where I started to think I want to change people's perceptions on yeah. what is meaningful and what is valuable um, there is a um, a man called Peter Vermeulen who is quite big in the autism field and he talks on one of his podcasts on YouTube about what is meaningful and how can we make a kind of behavior meaningful to society if that's what we have to do yeah. so if a young per he talks about a young person with autism who likes smashing bottles on the, on the floor because he likes the sound of it but cool. actually could they go around the community collecting bottles and putting them in the recycling so that it's cool. helping the community and I suppose it's just that idea really sparked how actually as educational psychologists we can broaden people's understanding um, mm -hmm. of what's valuable and just because it's not valuable to me or to the teacher in the school doesn't mean it's not valuable to that young person and we kind of have to acknowledge that but that also brings attention as well because I find in reports we might be encouraging young people with autism to spend time with peers and practice turn taking but actually if they don't want to do that how do we know that they don't want to do that or they do want to do that. And mm. why are we saying that that's meaningful for them? Um, so I'm not saying I've got the answer on, on that kind of area and I'm, I'm not certain on it. Mm. But I think, as I said before, this idea of being uncertain, I think the further I go through my career or my learning journey, the more questions I have and the less answers. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think actually that's quite healthy. Yeah, I think like... It's, it's making me think of, and yeah, I mean, I like, it's making me think of the opportunities that we have. And I'm thinking kind of primarily in the work that I do, it's usually statutory advice that I'm, I'm formulating um, with you. And it's often children kind of in reception, year one, year two. Um, and they, <laughs> They're in mainstream schools and it's like they're, they're, the teachers are finding it difficult to assess where they are on the curriculum because they can't communicate it either verbally or yeah. by, by writing or, or both yeah. and I love that type of work because it, it's such an honour to, to, to be somebody who goes in there with the skill set that we've got and, and really actively try and listen uh, to either the verbalizations that the young person's making or their different ways of communicating if that's through a talking mat or through just observing their behavior and, and yeah. trying to uh, help teachers to understand that there's a different way of looking at communication which isn't just can they say it can they write it are they doing what everybody else is doing? Yeah. And yeah. I, I find that like really a joyful thing to do. And I always, that always feels really meaningful to me, particularly if I get that, um, particularly, you know, I use talking mats quite often, but get that um, kind of interaction with, with the child where you feel that you're, you're in a real conversation and you're not just doing it tokenistically. And it's yeah. about what they like, and it's not just about 
what school's about it's about what their life is about um and I, I think that's like a really important thing about education, which I'll come back to again. But am I am I getting it? Am I getting the co-production by the sounds of it? Yeah, and I think it's hard for teachers because they're in a pressurised environment with a lot of expectations. And I, I would imagine most teachers go into teaching because they want to make a difference. They want to help children learn. They, mm. they and. I feel sometimes perhaps they're not given those opportunities and I think you're right we're quite lucky because we allow the space for teachers to really think about what they're doing Mm. and I think all teachers could do exactly what we would do in terms of trying to get the opinions and the views of the child and young person but they're just not given the kind of resources and the Mm. environment in which they can do it um but actually I think it's quite powerful that we can come in sometimes and take that opportunity and sit with a teacher and say, they told me this or they showed me this. And um, I always talk about the magic in the room and what you, when you feel it in your stomach. <laughs> and I know that sounds a, a bit strange, but actually that's how I measure my success or the success that I've had with a case, because I think you, you've, either you might see it in their eyes or you might see it in the child's eyes when they they look and they think you're actually listening to me um Mm. and luckily we're in a nice position that I think a lot of us experience it quite often um and I think it's harder sometimes um to do that with non-verbal children or children who perhaps don't have the confidence maybe to speak with us because I think another area that I'll possibly talk about earlier is the fact we are strange unfamiliar adults who who come in and it's not an easy task for them to do that but I think we bring a lot of resources and skills in still being able to provide that opportunity Mm -hmm. um, in a non-verbal way yeah absolutely and I, I think it's that you know we do need to to keep mindful of what you say about like teachers don't want to not listen. It's just they're listening to perhaps 25, 26, 27, 32 children who are all vying for attention and have these learning goals to, um, to, yeah, to complete to an age related expectation, whatever that might mean. And that's, it's a difficult job to do that. So maybe just, I guess part of our role is like, a listening to what those pe- children who might find it more difficult to communicate might be saying but also to provide the tools for which other people could help them yeah um to to have a voice um yeah and i think that there is um I suppose we have to acknowledge that it's quite a scary and daunting prospect sometimes because adults are adults and children are children and Mm. historically that's the way it's been (laughs) and children are supposed to listen to adults and and do what they say and um it's quite new territory and I did some research last year around professional views of co-production and what they feel about it and not only were they not really sure what it was Mm. but actually they weren't sure how to do it they weren't sure that they had the systems, the mechanisms to, to do it, whether that was having the resources, um, making it accessible for all children, not just one particular kind mm-hmm. of demographic of a child. Um, actually, 
with the need as well of leadership and for it to be embedded within systems rather than it being something we're trying to do on your own. And actually, I think that really highlighted to me that it's a struggle is co-production or participation, however, however you want to um, address it, that actually it's that kind of uncertainty, again, um, <laughs> of trying something new. Um, and obviously there's all this legislation that says this should be part of our role and not just our role within care settings and within health settings, but actually there's no guidance. There's no mm. guidance on how, how you do it successfully. Um, and I think that's why you have to rely on that gut feeling of actually there was something in using that. Um, mm. And that bring, brings me to another tension that I've had as a trainee and this idea of us being scientific practitioners and evidence-based practice and all of this mm. kind of um, aspect of our role, which I very much agree with, but also I agree with practice-based evidence and, and seeing what mm -hmm. works um, and not being afraid to take a risk, um, obviously, as long as you're doing it with the best intentions. Yeah, um, yeah. Because actually sometimes that's when you really start to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it, yeah, I mean, there's the, there's the evidence base, the psychological evidence base that can be applied to a situation and maybe that's helpful about formulating what might be going on or what the solution to something might be. But there's also the, I think there's the evidence base for what are the experiences of that young person or that family or that teacher. Uh, and we have to weigh up what psychology is telling us with what the context is telling us and that kind of idea of kind of pragmatism about you know truth finds its worth in you know ideas find their worth in like the, the action that they, they kind of lead to um co-production surely is then at the the center of that because it, you you really get the real understanding of um what somebody would like to get from education yeah. um, i guess that that i guess that under that value underpins my practice and i guess my view of pedagogy or what education is about i guess because before i can't remember what exactly i read paulo Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed mm -hmm. but basically he argues that we shouldn't rely on banking forms of education like we have as a society um, funds of education that we can transfer into in, into students. Mm -hmm. What Freire argues is that um, education should be about individuals within communities really looking inside to what's important to them, what are their aspirations uh, and what lessons they need to learn in order to hit those aspirations. Um, uh, and, uh, and kind of focusing education that way. And as you said before, we're now in a, in a, in a situation with a, a kind of a curriculum focused um, education system in the UK that that seems difficult to, to, to do. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's something that we can do. And I think that's where kind of it underpins the idea of, of hope. And Joe Taylor was talking about like the authenticity of hope, mm -hmm. like coming in and 
asking the questions, listening for the hopes, and then, you know, I, I argue about like trying to galvanize education professionals and families behind those hopes, it makes things, things um, make more sense. And I think when you talk about that magic in the room um, for young people, when they feel that something aligns, that's like, that's the feat, surely the feeling of like, this is meaningful. This is actually about something I care about. Uh, and, you know, if we can uh, make situations where that can happen more often for us and for the people we're working with, then I think um, our profession becomes really valuable um, in, in what we do because it's centred around that co-production of, 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 of hope. Yeah, and I think one way that educational psychologists do that quite often um, is through things like person-centred planning meetings and mm. tasks. And I know this year within my practice, I've really tried to drive person-centred planning meetings. But again, it comes back to that relationship with your school and ensuring mm. that they have that trust in you, really. Because I don't think within a lot of areas that's common practice. Um, mm. And it can seem quite daunting, but actually I think some a, a framework that like that allows everybody else to see that magic. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first one I did with a particular school, straight away they said, that was, that was brilliant. <laughs> can we do that again? Um, and also I think that framework allowing that young person to feel valued. They've been invited to that meeting mm -hmm. or they've invited the people to the meeting and it really shows them actually we really care what you think and sometimes no level of kind of other intervention would mm. get to that outcome um, for them or get them to feel that kind of sense of purpose and that sense of belonging and that sense of um, feeling valued I suppose mm. um, and so I know we talk in educational psychology a lot about kind of assessment and intervention being continuous in everything we do and I think mm. things like person-centered planning meetings really are strongly backed by that because actually it's that kind of opening that dialogue and really understanding that young person's narrative and not being frightened really to acknowledge that there are things that are good and there are things that are bad because I think mm. also we're typically British where we like to think everything's fine let's just get on with it but actually until we all sit and really acknowledge the full picture mm. then I feel like we struggle to make movement um with it um, yeah yeah I mean I've, I've been thinking about that this week about like about the purpose of education and and how that interacts with kind of personal, authentic hope. Um, I think I've kind of drawn to, and kind of bounce this idea off you, I guess, is that like, if you think like, what's the most successful book and film series of the last 20 years, certainly of my kind of young adulthood and, and you, that's like Harry Potter, mm -hmm. right? This is a book that's about going to school yeah um and it's like obviously it's it's magical and like hogwarts is a school we want to go to every you know that's kind of like a sort of meme of our generation but like why is that um and i think what jk rowling really lays out really nicely it's kind of a i guess it's a metaphor about 
education and the power of it and the importance of it is that you know Harry Ron and Hermione go through school and they go to all these lessons that's one of the plots the other plot is that they've kind of got this big meta quest yes you know the big thing they're going through and that's like the the thing that's driving me that's like the destiny of their life and it seems like in Hogwarts they're given enough agency to go and really kind of map out why going to divination or potions whatever it maps to their bigger quest and then they have they usually have a mini quest at the end of each school year um no health and safety they just go for it (laughs) and and it and it teaches them a lesson about themselves and it's just like this is all worth it Uh, and there are lessons in there that people harry and ron and particularly don't like don't Mm -hmm. get on with and difficult um people you know different difficult teachers like snape but the lessons they learn about handling that situation and sticking in and all of that is 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 really important and i think there's like a sub metaphor of that in the books which is the game of quidditch where there's like the golden snitch which is like the meaningful thing that ends the game if you get that and you achieve that thing everything else is like you've won regardless of what else is happening and then below that physically below in the game you've got like these sub goals happening yeah. um so you've got the kind of basketball-y sort of game going on um and you know sometimes you win sometimes you lose you, you get these things that are kind of whacking you out of nowhere and that's like a metaphor for i guess kind of kind of life and and trying to i guess build your innings um so you're in a good situation to go and get that golden stitch um that's a very extended metaphor (laughs) that i've an analogy that i've tried to do but i think it's like it i have no doubt that that metaphor has creeped in somewhere to inspire me to stay in education and and to keep going and keep searching for that meaning uh, and, and to, to develop hope. And I think it's like, it like dawn, I woke up with just like, oh, that's what that must be about yeah. um, earlier I, this week. I think that's quite interesting because I've never even thought about it like that. But actually, I think you're right. This, whether it was purposeful uh, by mm. J.K. Rowling or not, mm. I think you're right. Why is it that we find that fascinating? And they have got that agency and I suppose their kind of hope and aspirations are valued mm. um, even if that means that they go about things the wrong way <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, or do well, they things, break rules yeah certainly yeah that break the rules and challenge the i suppose um the boundaries that are in place actually it's value in that and i think again that's what we do we we try and understand people's stories and why it is they're doing something um, mm. or why it is they're aspiring for something um, and I think that that's a, a really valuable thing to do. But again, schools don't always have that opportunity, but we can no. create that environment and that, that kind of um, moment really where they can stop to really think because nobody ever does anything to be irrational, I, I don't mm. think, not purposefully. So there's always some kind of story behind it to understand. Um, mm. And until we're in tune with that, that person probably can't be successful um, until we have understand what they're working towards and kind mm. of 
value it to an extent or at least have that conversation to understand why we don't and why they do mm. yeah um, but yeah i think i think that was quite an interesting analogy <laughs> and an interesting metaphor mm. yeah I, I think it's you know just yeah i mean I, i'm just thinking of like why those books and films are so yeah. they just resonate even though you know, I you know, kind of all you know, going through you know, Sky films, whatever, always sort of drawn to watching that film, and it's it's like com it's comfort food sort of film. Like it tells me something, but it's you know, I know the quest off by heart and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, you could drag that analogy on for, for forever. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but I think like thinking about your psychology teacher at school and, and why they had such like an important part in kind of forming the values that you have about being uncertain all that sort of thing that, that's that's very dumbledore-esque yes you know yes. it's like so this we're on a quest together but you have to complete it yourself yeah you know that's and however unfair that might be so yeah, yeah. and i think you just reminded me there about this kind the there's that element of trust there of mm not only kind of valuing what somebody wants to aspire to, but actually trusting that they can aspire to it by themselves mm -hmm. or, or giving them the kind of space to. And I think that's the other thing that often I've explored within the idea of co-production and participation. We don't often give young people that level of trust mm -hmm. throughout their life. They're told what to do or what to think or whether or i've been reading a, a book recently called how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk yeah. and um very much in the beginning of it the theme is about how if a child says i'm cold or i'm hungry or i'm tired mm. parents automatically say no you're not you've just had a nap no you're not <laughs> you've mm. just eaten and actually we kind of suppress children and young people's views not not knowingly I, I don't think, and with, with no malicious intention, but then we expect that when they get to being 16, they know what it is that they want to do or that they should be independent, that they should um, have aspirations. And there doesn't seem to be a kind of match between what we expect of them and what environment and skills we provide them with, um, mm. which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just something that's like just sprung into my head there. It's like you talked about earlier about like there being a British culture of like everything will be fine, we're just gonna do this and it'll be fine. And I wonder if that like seeps through. Um, because on the first episode, I talked to Joe about saying like, I wish someone had just asked me when I was like 12, 13, 14 what I wanted to do, and then I wouldn't have had to find out the hard way. So maybe it's like yeah. counterintuitive for you know some people to to be so like forthright about understanding who they are and what their identity is and where they'd like to go yeah. as early in education um as as secondary school yeah yeah and again it's it's about providing those opportunities for young mm. people um and something else i've explored actually is i think within the field of educational psychology 
this might be slightly contested, but I think that mm. most professionals think that they provide that environment for young people mm -hmm. and they give them that kind of agency um, and give them a voice, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But that idea also sits uncomfortably with me because actually, do we? provide that environment mm. we often go in as you talked about before in terms of working in traded services or working for schools that often we go in on a day and a time that suits the senko or the teacher mm. we take a child out of class often without them knowing and with no kind of choice in that and then we ask them lots of questions about what their personal life is or about or we do lots of testing or, or what kind of assessment you're doing with them and then we go away and I think sometimes although we feel that we we provide a nice environment perhaps that we don't um, which is a little bit linked to my research at the moment I'm working with uh, an educational psychology service to develop their service from scratch and we decided that to do that we would ask young people if they wanted to be part of that mm. and I suppose that's the first step because there's this other idea within co-production that actually that might not be of interest to the young person mm -hmm. <laughs> so at that point you stop because they don't want they're not interested in that but actually young people were and they shared their ideas with us um, about what would be important if they were meeting an educational psychologist or any kind of professional that might work with them in school mm -hmm. um, and young people said they would like to know about us they yeah. would like prior warning um, so something i do in my practice is i have one page profiles i have mm -hmm. one for a child one for a young person and i send them in advance um, and i ask the somebody a key person to go through it with the child um, it's got a picture of me on and a picture of my dog and what I like, what I think I'm good at and also what actually I'm trying to get better at because I think okay. we have to acknowledge our own flaws as well um, and explaining about my role because I think often we don't also con uh, seek consent properly. We mm. might say to a child, oh, do you want to play some games? But actually how informed is that? Do they know who we are and what we're doing with that information? Mm. Um, and how do we communicate that to them? Mm. Um, so is, yeah. is, is the one page profile something that you, you've just kind of created or something you've seen? No, we had um, a session in the university around um, kind of how we introduce ourselves. Mm. Um, and it was something that was shown to us. And interestingly, still not many of us took it on. Um, okay. It's something I decided that was important to me. Um, mm -hmm. But since then, I've had placements in services and shown people, and actually, they felt very uncomfortable by it. Um, mm. And in in the research I'm doing at the moment, it's it's continuous. So we are meeting with EPs and young people together, and we're sharing these ideas and we're working mm -hmm. through them. And what educational psychologists were saying, some people felt that it overstepped boundaries okay. um, sharing that kind of information, or it might lead to difficulties if the child has um, particular issues around attachment but then mm. I think actually if I was a young person 
would I want to know a bit about the, the random person that's just taken me out of class? Um, and I think I would. And so we did trial it for a short period of time. And actually, what was interesting is educational psychologists had a real kind of 180 turn on, on how they felt about that. Um, so one educational psychologist said to me, I asked my children, would they want to see something like this? And they'd said yes. <laughs> and then she said, and then I actually used it with a young person. And she said, and I saw the value in it because actually they came in and they were confident and they knew who I was. Mm. Um, and often I have children come and say, oh, you've got a dog, haven't you? You're the lady with the dog. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just giving that kind of... Um, opportunity to build that relationship a little bit more effectively and stop yeah. that young person feeling scared um, and nervous about what it is that you're coming to do because I don't think any of us wish harm on working with young people but mm. actually do we harm sometimes by not really thinking about our practice and, and, and what we're doing. Mm. I mean it's made, it's made me think whether uh, you know i work in like a patch quite a small patch of schools i've got like five schools that i work into which i i i'm aware that's quite a small amount um and but i do like statutory advice in other schools but i'm just thinking you know it would there there might be you know, maybe i wouldn't send a one-page profile to every child because how accessible that would be how relevant i don't know but certainly like i'm in the schools and i'm providing psychological advice and services in the schools you know a lot of the primary schools have a lot of wall space and so maybe just saying you know this is tim he's the yeah. educational psychologist like these are his interests and like this is what his job role yeah. is in a way that's accessible it might be like a really helpful starting point because i do agree that like we are we try not to be intrusive and i guess we i guess the way that i uh, balance it it's just like well i'm i i am going to try and be as helpful as i can yeah. and like that balances out whether that's taking them out of their lesson etc mm -hmm. and i try to do it in a shorter amount of time in a way that's i've explained why i'm doing it and what i'm doing it for um but yeah i think making those proactive attempts to you know explain our role before we're even there yeah. could could be helpful i mean i understand the i guess the concerns perhaps about you know maybe faking friendship and mm -hmm. you know the confusing element of us working in small windows yeah yeah um, but i think it's important like Gigdish was saying last week that she's spends time in the school when she's not being paid like she has lunch she has that sort of thing yeah and just maybe spending that time outside working with the senko and then go straight to the child or that and you know being present in the yard or wherever wherever it is and answering questions from children yeah i think a helpful starting point it was interesting what you said about having your picture on the wall because there were lots of ideas that young people gave us about whether we are with the staff because often you walk into a school reception and it's got pictures of all the staff and if you were regular contact with the school you could be included on that or I've known mm. EPs who have had 
kind of a bit on the website, a, a section on the website to explain who they are. And okay. um, we talked as well about um, assemblies. Would it be helpful to mm. have a school assembly and you go and you explain a bit about your job um, yeah. and what that means? And we, that linked to kind of this ethos of young people saying to us that when, when I'm taken out of class, and these were young people, like teenage years, um, who said that they feel that there's something wrong with them. And then they have to explain to their friends why it is that they had to go out and see somebody um, mm -hmm. and how we can maybe develop a narrative that it's not necessarily that something's wrong, but mm -hmm. about making something better um, and trying to make progress and mm -hmm. how we do that and how we make us accessible to, to more than just the young people we work with so <laughs> one young lad said to me well when it's our GCSEs can we not all have the option to come and see you <laughs> and mm -hmm. think about our learning and think about how we're doing um but again that comes back to also young people's understanding of who we are and what our mm -hmm. job is and perhaps when it's hard isn't it because I'm not sure really there's one clear answer to that because it depends on where you work and the service that you're in and what opportunities to have whether you're doing therapeutic work or whether you're just doing statutory work mm -hmm. um, and how we might explain to young people that actually this isn't kind of like I'm not a counsellor um, but I can think about your classroom and how you learn and, and what might help you or how you might make friends um, mm -hmm. and I think we're just not maybe as open as we could be um and it's something that even down to how we do our referral forms or requests for involvement forms um i've worked in some services that have had a, a section for young people to write their views and sign and then you work in other services and that's not really something that's talked about and it's just the Senko's decided and your mum and dad have decided, so here you go. <laughs> um, mm. But actually, guidance shows that we should be doing that. Um, and I think that's hard. I think I've found as a trainee, particularly to go into a service where perhaps this kind of area hasn't been thought about, um, can be challenging and difficult. Mm. But actually, I, back down to that magic I've seen how it can work. So that keeps me motivated actually maybe to have some tricky conversations or maybe just to say, this is how I'm going to practice. Mm. And maybe it's about showing other people that magic so that they can see yeah. actually. Or that's part of the reason I wanted to do the podcast today because I think if I can make one person stop and think, oh, I haven't thought about that. Mm. And, and and it's not that there is answers because I think we have to keep learning on this journey and, and co-production is something that people don't really know about or, or, mm. or feel uncomfortable with. And to be honest, I felt if you'd have asked me back in last July, I would have felt very uncomfortable about it too. Mm. But I think you've just got to be daring to take a chance and to really listen and to, to think about how we seek information from young people how we provide the opportunity but also how we feed back to them as well mm. yeah yeah I, I, yeah i mean I, it's, it's really powerful to kind of listening how like your kind of journey from you know being somebody who's relatively like outspoken in their community and headstrong about 
pursuing the goals that you wanted to do and then how that was nurtured in your you know secondary school and with your psychology teacher now it's kind of coming through into your practice as you know those things in childhood that we found helpful and sustained us and had that magic element to them yeah. and coming through in our practices as as, uh, as EP so I guess there's the like how how did we bring the, that magic into the everydayness of what we do you know yeah. we it is a job it's a great yeah. job but it's a job um and I yeah I think that's a really powerful way of hearing it it's just it's it's there's two things I guess that I was thinking as well when you were saying there's you know we don't just have to work with individuals individual children I've I've been working um I don't know if you've heard of the working on what works intervention no no okay so the working on what, what works intervention is like a class intervention mm-hmm. um where a, a, an EP or a coach um so somebody who's going in just to have what a certain role and that role is to sit and observe in that class and so I do it for 40 minutes at a time and I just look for what's going well with every single child and then you give feedback to every single child in the class of what you think has gone well um and it's, it's been quite a powerful experience for me um I've done it with one of the year five classes who were kind of deemed the naughty class the difficult class um and just and they also had like a new teacher after developing a very close bond with their old teacher so I've been working with the with that teacher to kind of I don't know if it would be co-production with well, at the moment, it's between me and the class teacher about like what positives are there from this class, what strengths do we draw on as they approach the end of their primary schooling, and then the plan before COVID happened was to get the whole class together and do a like a, a team path um, uh-huh. with them about like hey these are the good things that we've got feedback on, how can we do more of that and like what challenges that we can take on in the next year with our next teacher, yeah. um, and and. I was, I guess I was hoping that that would be a way of embedding an idea of co-production between a class and their teacher and an outside coach, because the idea is that the head teacher and the Senko were going to start doing it yeah. instead of me, yeah. um, to, to go, to go forward and try to embed those ways of being and doing, um, unfortunately we've been rudely interrupted but <laughs> I uh, think you touched on a really important point then about sustainability. And I think that's a strong kind of theme within core production that it shouldn't just be we have one meeting all together and then that's it. It's about how do we work together over time to create positive change. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a lovely example that you you gave and something I've not heard about, but I'm quite interested in, mm. in terms of how do we, I suppose, there's a lot of learning within that for the children, for the teacher, and then you're creating a system that can continue mm. um, to create a more positive ethos within the school. Um, and I think that's what co-production does. It touches on more than one element continuously um, mm. to create that change, which is quite nice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, a really nice experience because it's actually allowed me to... I guess reframe how some of those children are seen 
Mm-hmm. Um, but also it allows me to use like those different observation methods. Like we were talking earlier, like we go in a different mindset and, you know, for children who are finding the work difficult, but have a really good relationship with the teacher and can take those like nonverbal cues and all of that sort of thing and wait their turn. It's like, I see you and I see that you're doing that. And that's, that's really good. I guess if I'm looking at it with a critical lens at the moment where I'm at with it, it's like, at the moment, it's a lovely co-production tool for the school. I haven't evaluated with the children, yeah. whether it even matters to them. Yeah. I guess I've evaluated it in within personal relationships with those children because mm-hmm. they all come and talk to me. They'll talk to me about the intervention yeah. and all of that sort of stuff. But I haven't done like that kind of the outcome, like how does this link to what they yeah. think specifically yeah. so it's something i've got to think about going forward and the intervention work on what works is really if you're doing it in a purest form it's just giving the feedback over 10 sessions i think to make it sustainable you do have to put it in something else and and, and a you know, path for planning yeah. tomorrow's type framework helps do that yeah and i think i think you're right but actually hearing you talk makes me think that actually those children probably do value it by keep coming to talk to you about it and to Mm -hmm. keep and I suppose it comes back to that how are we measuring outcomes again does it have to be done explicitly or again is it that kind of moment where a child says to you actually this was really good or or seems pleased with what feedback you give them Mm -hmm. or is it that moment that the success um, but it can be quite hard in a in a role where we're supposed to quantify and and kind of um, have really clear outcomes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for me, the outcome's the process. Yeah. If the process is repeated, that's the outcome, um, and it's about kind of holding those things over, um, you know, short short periods of time and building up to for it to be a habit. Um, and I guess I frame that's like, well, it's like hope. It's like establishing like those goals and different ways of working towards them and feeling more confident as you go and you work through that process over and over again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's, I mean, when you said is you hope that you've influenced one person, well, I, I, I tell you now, evaluate this, you have um certainly about kind of presence in schools and explaining roles like i'd never even thought that's part of co-production um but that's been really helpful um i was wondering if i could um move us on to a question of course you can if, if that's okay and it's yeah. a question uh, I'll just get on my phone um that i've had from anna Sargent, who's at newcastle tep um working in the northwest where is it? One second. Right. She says, and we might have answered some of this already, but I think it's worth just bringing the question to um, to the fore. So she says, I'd be interested in hearing uh, your thoughts on how we can know or sense that our work with children or young people or anyone has been collaborative, um, particularly when we're thinking about the effects of power dynamics between children, young people and adults or EPs. So there's two bits of question. Let's 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 try that bit first and then I'll come back to the question after. So the idea about whether we know something's been collaborative, I suppose 
we know really sometimes before we even go into a meeting or because we think about how we might set that meeting up. And I remember um, as an assistant, I used to go and just ask questions to parents or to teaching staff and get their information and then go away. But then actually, I think just this idea of asking them, what is it that you hope for your child? Mm. Um, Or what is it that you want from this consultation? Mm. Makes it collaborative and we can do it in really, it doesn't have to be this whole big thing, just then two questions might make it seem collaborative but how we sense it I think is how we get feedback from the people we are working with so I always like to ask at the end of my consultations um how was the experience for you Mm -hmm. um do you feel that you were listened to do you feel that we have created outcomes that represent your views I suppose we do it in the way that we really um reflect back what we've heard Mm. did i hear you correctly um and but i think it's daunting as well this idea of how we might generate outcomes with other people and because again that comes back to this expectation that we're the person that's going to bring the advice but Mm. actually is that important is actually maybe the the process of allowing uh, teaching staff families young people to come together to really think about what the collective goal is or maybe mm. having the space to uh, talk about the goals that are challenging so it might be that the young person wants to do one thing but the family wants something else is that really the collaboration and is that more meaningful maybe than mm. us going away to give advice um, I'm not quite sure if I am answering, <laughs> but it's just things that I think about. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think I've had, like, like, the PATH framework is like a mainstay of my psychological practice, and I've been mm-hmm. on a bit of a journey with it in terms of what's collaborative and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tend to, I do use it in quite a lot of my casework at some point, but I always used to start with it. And depending on the referral, yeah. I'd kind of decide who I was going to start it with. Yeah. And that was often the parent and or the child. Yeah. Um, and I think collaborative, what my experience of that is that I do this lovely framework and say, oh, this is great. Um, these are our goals there. You know, it's good hope. It's like, it's realistic. It's clear sighted. Mm-hmm it seems reasonable that we can break it down into sub goals as well. But I left the teaching staff out of it. And then when I brought it to a, to a, to meetings, it was just like, well, you're just bringing this on us now. And you know, it's not collaborative with us, although it is co-production with a parent or a child. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's just like, I guess timing, the co-production is is really important yeah. and understanding those dynamics and how you can still understand those dynamics and understand where they're coming from but you know really try and use that idea of co-production or hopeful practice to galvanize people behind that one big goal like you're saying yeah. like knowing when to time that's really important and part of that is knowing the situation knowing the context and knowing what's going to be valuable 
And I think um, you right. I think it depends on kind of what came across then is there was collaboration, but people feel left out. But I suppose that comes back down to the expectations of the school and, and kind of the motivation. Um, mm -hmm. In some of my casework, it's very clear that we need to start with the young person. Mm -hmm. And so usually in my secondary work, if a child's stuck, I've had a few cases recently of, of children struggling to attend school. And I think, well, nobody else has the answers. So let's start with the, the young person. And I think another part of it for me is explaining my rationale for choosing things. Mm. Um, but wherever possible, I try to bring everybody together. Um, mm. But then equally, sometimes a young person doesn't want to be part of that. Yeah. So, but if you ask them and give them that opportunity and, and talk about how you might feed back from that meeting um, and what they want to be shared at that meeting, mm. that can be quite helpful. Um, mm. But I suppose maybe the sense is, I was going to say originally that everybody is happy. Is that, or, or leaves feeling hopeful perhaps, or mm. leaves feeling that there's been some kind of, understanding gained or some progress made um, yeah. but actually sometimes you might feel it's better to collaborate with somebody else and and it might cause a challenge like what you just described then mm. Um, mm. but I suppose as long as you've gone in it with the the best of intentions and the rationale and if you can explain that then it's still a positive mm. collaboration. Yeah, yeah. I think collaboration, like multi-agency collaboration, or even just collaboration within a school. Yeah, I always come back to the idea of like containment, like being understood and responded to appropriately. That's important. Like being with people, and if people can come out of a meeting and feel I've been understood, I've been listened to, and I've been responded to appropriately. And I guess the third part is like, and now I know there's a bit of action that I can do which is goal orientated and it's working like it's a common goal that everybody has mm -hmm. we're on a similar page we're at least in the same chapter if not on the same page mm -hmm. you know and we can work towards that you know that's that's good because it leads to more conversations and more reviews about what helped what didn't work and all of those sort of things so I think that's an important part of collaboration as you said, it's like setting that sustainability mm -hmm. by modelling it, even if we're not there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what I've realised as well about the moment you ask for a parent to be invited to a meeting or a young person, the moment you're setting your expectation of, of what collaboration is um, mm. and what's important. And equally, schools might not always value that. Um, but perhaps that's the conversation you need to have. And I remember recently I did a cognitive assessment for a young person mm -hmm. and I set up um, a, a joint feedback meeting with the parent, the young person wanted to mm. sit in and lots of members from the secondary school. And after the parent left, the school were like in shock saying, well, why was the parent here? And why was the young person here? Mm -hmm. And I suppose, we had to have a conversation about that's their information that's their family that the information is theirs really before it is yours um and but it's quite difficult to have those conversations but i think once you do then mm. there's that kind of 
greater understanding about how collaboration might be beneficial and I'm not saying that it always is because it might not be um, but I think once you have that rationale and you've made it clear and then when people see it or sense it or experience that that progress that's when um, you start to know that perhaps it's working <laughs> or having an impact in a positive yeah. way yeah yeah I think yeah I, I agree. I think it's that just it's making the two systems work together um, of like what is this young person's life quest mm. and and what um, how can education help with that? Yeah. And I, I want both those two people understand that they're, they're, well, the person in the institution works out that they can help each other to both achieve their goals. Yeah. Then it's an easier conversation about okay, what next? Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, you know that's that comes back to like why I came up with hope as the common that's the common yeah. thing. Yeah, we're both gonna have you know teachers are gonna have hopes for that child even if they're role based, and the child's gonna have hopes about their life, mm -hmm. and some of that's gonna be in school, and the parent can support can support both those processes. Um, and I wonder if there's something in it as well that actually perhaps when we experience challenge in collaboration, it might be when people don't have hope for change mm. or they don't have this, they don't feel they have the resources or the systems mm -hmm. to support that change. Um, and maybe they're feeling quite fearful as well. I think in a lot of schools and I think with a lot of professionals, they worry that if, we ask children and young people what they want. It'll be something that is unachievable. Mm. Um, or perhaps they feel like they're creating an environment that is solely positive and not realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I just try to be mindful of although I have quite a positive perspective on collaboration, participation and co-production, that actually the circumstances circumstances where perhaps it won't be as positive but also not everybody has that experience um, so I have to try and understand where they are mm -hmm. so it can be quite frustrating sometimes but it it's um, just something I try to be mindful of yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah it's well I think it certainly collaboration can be frustrating and difficult but I think it's again seeing it's a process not an event yeah. um is, is 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 really important and i guess something that i've just kind of come into my mind there is like part of being able to be open to collaboration is is knowing who we are and valuing that and valuing who other people are and, yeah. and, and encouraging them to be aware of their identity and, and how that impacts on the collaborative process yeah. um and i guess as teps that's something that we really encourage to kind of dig deep and, and and think of but it's just like how do we I guess generate positive outcomes for other people together if we're unsure of what our role is in that so maybe it's just like yeah. keeping people safe and like there is a role to this it's not like you have you have to take on responsibility for all this children child's hopes and dreams it's like yeah. how does your role that you know you're really good at contribute to that yeah. And, and setting the management, the expectations of, of, of that 
with with the the, the the young person and and their family it's like this is this is what they can do and it's towards your goal so that yeah. that's a good thing and it's and when I talked to Joe I talked about the thing I used to say to my um when I was a pastor ahead of years like do you want to think of school as a prison or a shop because they're very different mindsets yeah um, I loved that analogy I thought it was very nice about what, what would you like to get off the shelves <laughs> yeah I, I think it's just like I don't know if I just came up with that or I read it somewhere 10 years ago but it's it certainly so something I come back to again and again it's just like okay um I guess it's the yeah I think it probably comes from parental engagement literature about making things like a consumer model i'll tell you where mm -hmm. i'll tell you exactly where it came from actually um when i was studying for my masters i worked in the shoe shop shoe mm -hmm. and i reflected on how pleasant my days were and shifts were working at shoe compared to when i was ahead of year ahead of house where i felt i was battling with people when i just asked them what they wanted and did my best to get as near to that as possible. And that's yeah. like insanely simple <laughs> and <laughs> common sense. But it just like that experience of just being a shoe salesman for three months yeah. completely changed the way that I saw relationships. And perhaps, yeah. you know, if we, I guess if you, people thought, I, I think I thought if I thought about engaging with parents which is something I was really like nervous and anxious about when I was ahead of year and head of house hate picking up the phone and saying this has happened because I was worried about what would come back because I was unsure of my role in that yeah um I thought okay well actually the thing that I can do and is helpful is listen and and, and try and find out if I can do something to help yeah yeah and ask people what they want I don't think we do that very often um no because we're always on our own agendas with our own motivations and that's not necessarily wrong mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot um it's very powerful when we just stop to ask and to listen um, yeah. and I don't think I answered the second part of Anna's question um, but in terms of addressing the power dynamics I know we've talked a little bit about the things I do in practice with the one-page mm. profiles and um, I think the idea, I briefly touched on it about feeding back to young people. So even if you're in an environment where perhaps co-production isn't necessarily valued because you've got mm. to start where people are and you're having a meeting without a young person, saying to them, saying to the teacher, could you just give them this little postcard that explains a bit that we've, and I've wrote mm. what we've talked about in the meeting on give a bit brief summary or ask to go back to class to speak to them mm -hmm. or uh, but I think we also need to do that with with teachers and I think we do it quite well sometimes with affirmations but then I also struggle sometimes when we affirm people do we is that quite condescending <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I think just acknowledging where people are being open and honest um, mm -hmm. and I think sometimes particularly when you're training you feel that there's some kind of I don't know about other people but I put expectation on myself um about doing things well and not being seen that um I don't know or but actually it's all that kind of stuff that reduces that power, power dynamic and oh I'm really sorry mm. I don't actually know about that I'm going to go and ask a colleague and all of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that creates an environment that is I suppose open to opportunity 
open to change, open to making progress and building relationships that are sustainable over time and effective. Mm. And that's where you have that that kind of bigger impact, I think, in terms of the systems. I know you spoke mm. a lot about systemic work last week. Um, but I don't think we can underestimate sometimes the small things we do to make people mm. feel empowered um, and positive and to give them that sense of hope. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's like really powerful what you just said there about doing the small relational things to kind of add, to to help people feel more comfortable and um, I guess to to model that openness, that willingness to get things wrong or to willingness not to know and having that humility and I think actually what that's kind of made me think about it's like the education system is like performative for children but it's also performative for staff and they feel that they need to perform a certain role in a particular way and to defend their interests in a certain way and I guess my reflections of what multi-agency meetings or what parental meetings or what any sort of meeting was like when I was a new head of year was like it was an emotional experience it was very vulnerable yeah um and I guess the power dynamic you know that is the thing you pull on when it's like that's the shield when Mm. you're feeling threatened by not understanding being seen as not knowing being Mm. seen as all of those things so yeah, I think it's very important that we just do help people to think relationally, model uh, model that um, openness and humility, and also, you know, as much as there's a power dynamic, there's also a competency dynamic. Yeah. Uh, so it's just like valuing the things that people can do, have done, yeah. and might do in the future. Uh, and drawing on that rather than what power do you have it's like what competency do you have um and that's a different conversation then because you can go to the child and say what agency do you have to take on what goal are you going to take on that gets us near the bigger dream goal and then to the teacher and then to the parent and they're okay okay, everybody's doing something that's cool man yeah yeah i think that's a lovely way to think about it Mm. and um you made me think that actually often i do feel incompetent in some ways like I've never been a teacher um, mm. so I think I feel quite open and quite comf- comfortable in some respects with actually I don't feel competent in this situation the teacher knows about the mm. curriculum and all of this kind of stuff and that's the bit I'm learning and actually I can contribute this bit that perhaps they don't know and I think because I'm comfortable with that that kind of differing in power depending mm. what kind of aspect you are talking about that allows me to create a, an environment where perhaps they might start to feel comfortable with mm. it mm. yeah and it, it brings me back to something you said right at the start of this podcast about um, being a village child and that idea that the village raises the child that idea is, is premised on like everybody has different competencies different powers yeah. different things to bring to this yeah and and that's perhaps something like a value that we should bring to schools, you know. Yeah. It's that they yeah. are communities, they are people who can help. Um, and and that's maybe how we should 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 see them. And perhaps that if not stops us thinking so cynically about power dynamic, yeah. you think creatively about like, okay, 
what's the what's the power in the room to affect positive change and that's a conversation about competency not oppression yeah what a lovely what a lovely way to think about it well yes thinking and action are different but uh, yeah <laughs> I, I hope it is right we're we're, we're hurtling up on 90 minutes Cracking. um yeah um i'm i think we've done our best to answer anna's question but obviously i'm open to the twitter sphere and the facebook and whoever to to come in and tell us if we're not quite there or <laughs> you know do whatever but do you have any kind of closing remarks i think Where's it's it? just it's been really interesting just to be able to get somebody else's perspective um on kind of my own little ideas and I think often we can become so passionate about something that we kind of lose that perspective a little bit um, mm. and so I'd be interested to see what other kind of services and EPs think about uh, what we've talked about um, but I think you've really raised for me that actually we although we try and reduce that power dynamic we really can try and have a positive impact on the communities within which we work um, and actually the power of using this kind of platform um, to, to develop our understanding of how we can do that. Mm. Yeah I mean I, I, I came into this uh, podcast really quite nervous about or I'm not quite sure what is meant by co-production and am I doing something wrong uh, and feeling that sort of emotional vulnerability about it but I guess from from listening to you and chatting to you it's really helped me to understand what it is and, and how it fits with like how I see the education system anyway I yeah. don't feel uh incompetent now but I do think there's like actions I can go away and and do something you know when we return to schools and to feel um validated in 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 trying to pursue my journey with co-production as yeah. as, as, as I'm doing um so that i guess that would be my uh closing remark i want to really thank you naomi it's been really fascinating um and i'll be really interested in reading your thesis but once it gets done yeah. uh, i've got to finish my thesis <laughs> um, keep chipping away keep chipping away and yeah i mean I, i'm really tempted now to bring a co-production angle in on i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm studying um fathers perceptions of their role in their children's development okay um and yeah there's an element of we haven't really consulted with fathers for quite some time in the uk so yeah. it might be something that i look beyond the yeah. thesis i'm looking at but yeah it's been a really useful um conversation and thank you very much thank you for having me